Welcome to the Keto Lifestyle Podcast hosted by nutritional coach Jessica Tai, where we are dedicated to promoting health and overall well-being through nutrition, specifically the ketogenic diet. We will provide you with all the latest science in nutrition, interviews with experts in the health and wellness field, and answer all your burning questions so you can find optimal health. This podcast is not intended to be used as medical advice and is to be used for informational purposes only. Please contact your doctor with any and all medical questions. Now here's Jessica. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode number 74 of the Keto Lifestyle Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Tai, nutritional therapy practitioner. And man, uh, happy to be with you this week. It's uh, just one thing after the other around here. <laughs> um, I, as you probably know, if you're a regular listener to this show, we did not have an episode last week due to my daughter Liliana um, spending a few days in the hospital last week. Uh, we actually, she had another seizure. Uh, she is epileptic and um, luckily we've only, she's only ever had two seizures. Um, but unfortunately, both of the times that she has had seizures, she has ended up in the ICU and had to be put on a ventilator. So um, that was indeed the case this um, last weekend uh, that we were in there. So um, anyway, so needless to say, I was still sitting in the hospital on Tuesday of last week, and that was uh, my normal release date for the podcast. I uh, did have some, I do, you know, I do have some interviews recorded, um, one that I will be sharing with you guys next week. That'll be great, but um, have some interviews recorded, but just didn't have time to put everything together and get those out. Um, we were concentrating on Lily and everything that needed to be done. So I am very grateful to say that uh, she is back to school. She actually went back on Friday just this past Friday and she is um, seems to be no worse for the wear she's back to her normal happy self and she loves going to school so she was super happy to be back in school and uh, everything's going well so far so um, unfortunately they never know uh, or never well both times that we've been in they're not able to tell us why she you know what triggers these seizures we can't figure out what triggers them. And she, um, for her, they are not seizures that she has and they pass. They are um, considered um, what they call grandma seizures. And <clears throat> she, um, you know, we pretty much uh, just lose her completely. Um, she was uh, this time only uh, out of it about 24 hours and was on a uh, ventilator about 24 hours. The last time it happened, um, we were in the ICU for about four days and she was on a ventilator for two of those days. So this time, um, her reaction wasn't as strong as it was the first time. Her brain was seemed to be able to uh, kind of get back online, if you will, quicker. So we are very grateful for that. And since she was diagnosed epileptic 15 months ago was her first seizure. And when they diagnosed her, um, she has been primarily ketogenic. And so I really do believe wholeheartedly that uh, that, that truly 
helped her in her healing process this time around in the hospital. Um, everything took about half of the amount of time as it did the last time we were in there. And she seems to be kind of uh, back to her normal self a lot quicker. It took several days when we got home the last time, probably upwards of about a week. And this time I would say by the next day she, after coming home, she was back to normal. Um, but I was hesitant to send her back uh, to school right away. So I did keep her out another day. But um, but really, I mean, her brain really seemed to heal better this time and she seemed to be feeling better quicker. So um, that's kind of my little testimony for her and being keto. So she is one of my keto kiddos for sure um, for medical reasons and no complaining out of Lily. She loves to eat ketogenic, loves all that yummy, yummy fat. And uh, those are some of her favorite foods. Um, so anyway, uh, that, so that is behind us. We're grateful that, uh, that everything worked out the way that it did. And, uh, I'm happy to be back with you guys this week and doing a podcast episode. We've got a lot of things going on. Last week was going to be our first wellness Wednesday out at the cabin. And that is in follow-up to the, um, cabin, the keto at the cabin retreat that went so well. And uh, all of the guests that were there just loved it. They had some suggestions. And one of the suggestions was that we do uh, kind of this wellness Wednesday that we, um, <clears throat> that we have like one day a week where people can come together and they can um, enjoy some of the services that I offer out there at the cabin um, that I had for the retreat. And so I thought that was a really good idea. So we are going to be doing that um, moving forward on select Wednesdays, uh, probably two to three Wednesdays a month, um, maybe not all four uh, or five, depending on how many there are in the month, but probably two to three. So this week is going to be the first one. Last week was going to start it, but but with um, everything going on with Lily, again, um, we had to cancel that. And so today, tomorrow will be our official first Wellness Wednesday. So if you have not gotten information on that and you are interested in more information, you can visit my web, um, my, uh, I'm sorry, Facebook page. I don't think I have anything on the website right now for that. But if you go to facebook.com forward slash Jessica Thai Nutrition, uh, you will find my page and that will give you information. There is a uh, information on there that you can click on the link to sign up. If you're interested in the infrared sauna visits, we do have four options for that. You can do a 30 minute uh, infrared visit, a 45 minute or a 30 minute with a shower afterwards or a 45 minute with a shower. So it kind of depends on if you have the ability to go back home and, and get cleaned up or if you're going, you know, want to go straight from there to whatever it is you want to do. Um, then you can have the use of the shower and get yourself all cleaned up. It is super important when you do an infrared sauna that you do make sure that you get cleaned up as quickly as possible because you don't want your skin uh, to reabsorb those toxins that it just sweated out. <clears throat> so, um, so we've got those options. I am offering a, a few dinners this week that um, I am actually prepping today. I will finish those as soon as I get done with this podcast and that this week is going to be um, always keto and low carb meals um, and this week is going to be keto um, chicken parmesan so it'll be made with chicken thighs and it is breaded in a uh, cheese mixture mostly parmesan crumbles and oh my gosh it's to die for we had that for the keto retreat everybody loved it got rave reviews so this week's meal will be the chicken parmesan 
that is served with a low carb, no sugar added marinara and um, topped with provolone cheese. And we have um, zoodles on the side. So you will have uh, uh, zucchini noodles on the side. So <clears throat> that should be really yummy. I am also offering this week the, um, let's see, chocolate chip cookie dough fat bombs, uh, my recipe that I make. So I will have some of those. We've already sold quite a bit of those. So there's a few available still if you would like to place an order for those. And then we also, I'm also offering peanut butter cup, um, uh, my homemade chocolate peanut butter cups and those are keto and then I am also oh I was offering caramel uh, keto turtle candies but those are and that's the caramel and pecan and chocolate but we have sold out of those so don't have any more of those um, do have a couple more servings of the dinner so if you're interested in that if you're local and want to swing by I will be at the cabin tomorrow from 9 30 to 5 30 you do need to make an appointment um, in order to do that so again if you have any other questions about it or interested feel free to visit my Facebook page or you can um, send me an email jessica at jessicatai.com and I'm happy to answer any questions you have for you for you or if you want me to send you the link so you can sign up um, either to get a meal or to do the infrared sauna I'm happy to do that I'm also doing a la carte one-on-ones there in half a half hour increments. So you can also book that if you want. And I typically do not offer that service, but I will offer that from time to time when my schedule allows during the Wellness Wednesdays. So if you want a half an hour session, you can also book that. And that can be where you're just getting some general advice, um, lifestyle and wellness, nutritional advice, or it could be that you, you know, when we look over a food journal with you, talk about, um, lifestyle tips, that type of thing. So um, we can do it that way. All right, so that's it The as far as announcements go. So this month is February. We are in February of 2019. <clears throat> and I thought it would be appropriate that we have a, a, I get a lot of questions about it and I see a lot of stuff on the internet um, on social media pertaining to heart health and ketogenic diets. So I thought it would be appropriate for the National Heart Healthy Month of February to do a keto cardiovascular heart health episode on here. Um, I think I've done them before. I don't know if I've actually done one specifically on heart health. I know I've talked a lot about cholesterol in the past, but um, I, I want to kind of just go over kind of the uh, kind of the whole cardiovascular system and kind of the pros and cons. So I do have a couple of talks this month that I have given. And basically this is kind of all the information that I give in those seminars um, that I've been doing throughout the month of February. So it's a uh, you know, just easy information for me to pass along to you guys and help dispel some of the myths because I know a lot of you out there are a little bit nervous. Um, you know, I still have clients that are a little nervous that they say, you know, well, I know you say it's okay, but you know, my doctor wants to check my numbers again and I'm a little bit nervous. And what if this, you know, is too much fat and all this kind of thing. So I want to help um, kind of share some information with you and hopefully put your mind at ease a little bit, or at least help spark if, uh, something in you that maybe you can go do some further research and some further reading um, from the right sources where you can learn um, good information about really what 
is helping your cardiovascular health. So we all know that your heart, um, I think everybody could agree that that is the hardest working muscle in our bodies. Um, our heart is a muscle and it never stops. And we get to rest everything else, but when we're resting, our heart is still going. <laughs> so obviously, hopefully. So um, it's a very hard working muscle. So we really need to take really good care of our heart. So our heart is part of our cardiovascular system. And the health of that system in large part really determines the health of our heart, right? So our cardiovascular system is made up of our blood vessels, um, the blood, and of course the heart. So let me give you a little bit of the some statistics so you kind of know um, kind of where we're coming from and where the state of our heart health is in this country. So these are stats updated from the American College of Cardiology um, from their 2000, 2017 report. So they do a report every year, and this one is from last year. Um, I don't, I, I'm not 100% sure if the 2019 is available yet, but it's usually available a couple of months into the next year. Uh, or the 2018, maybe I said that. Um, but anyway, so I don't know, but I had the 2017 readily available, so I'm just gonna use this one. Um, cardiovascular disease accounts for approximately 800,000 deaths in the United States, or one out of every three deaths. Although deaths due to cardio, or, or to, um, to uh, hmm, that's so weird. I have this typed in here. Um, wrong, which I don't know why it is. But anyway, all the deaths due to heart disease have declined over the last 10 years. Um, heart disease still remains the leading cause of death in the U.S. An estimated 790,000 adults experience a heart attack um, every year. Stroke accounts for one out of 20 deaths in the U.S., approximately one every 40 seconds. Um, someone will experience a stroke. The U.S. death rates for stroke um, have declined, but as adults with stroke survive, it has become the leading cause for long-term disability in the U.S. So um, we do have the ability to keep people alive now after strokes, but then, um, you know, they have long-term disability from that. Um, we experienced that firsthand with my father-in-law um, several years ago. My husband's father, um, that is what happened to him. He he was, he did, he was a stroke victim and, um, we, you know, they were able to keep him alive, but his quality of life was, um, was really awful. It was very hard to watch him go through that. An estimated one in three U.S. adults do not meet current recommendations for physical activity. Improvements in dietary patterns have been observed in both U.S. children and adults. Increased whole grain consumption and decreased sugary beverage consumption has been noticed in U.S. children's and adults. Okay, um, obesity rates increased over the past decade in the U.S. An estimated 37.7% of adults are, or, are obese. An estimated one of every three U.S. adults have elevated low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, cholesterol. Approximately 18% of U.S. adults have low, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels. An estimated 85.7 million Americans, or 34% of the population, have high blood pressure. And approximately 23.4 million American adults have diabetes, while an estimated nearly 8 million American adults have undiagnosed diabetes. So that's a lot of kind of depressing stats, right? I mean, that is um, like, wow, that is crazy that we have all that stuff going on. And I think it's kind of um, interesting 
because you would think that the rates of heart disease would be declining and we would not have nearly that many deaths from heart disease or that much disability from stroke, which is considered, um, obviously that's part of your cardiovascular system um, when you have a stroke. And so you would kind of think that, man, things should be getting better, right? It's still the leading cause of death um, in the U.S. And with all of the nutritional advice that the government's been giving us and telling us how to cut back fat and we need to increase our carbohydrates and that's going to improve the the health of our hearts and our cardiovascular system, you would think things would be on the rise, correct? I mean, if everything's going the way we're supposed to and eating all this fat and cholesterol is really detrimental to our health, that these numbers should be going the opposite direction, but they're not. So we're going to kind of dive in a little bit as to why this is happening. So there are four points that I would like to touch on that I believe are really what is going to help us ensure that we have great cardiovascular health. First is a lifestyle in which we have good stress management. That is super, super important. And too many times that is overlooked. Another huge thing that is overlooked and my number two Point that I want to touch on is good sleep hygiene. And no, that doesn't mean that you go to bed in clean pajamas and clean sheets. It means that your sleep quality is good. Um, so we need to really concentrate on good sleep. And again, much like stress, sleep is something that is very much overlooked and people are so concentrated on eating right and sometimes exercising right. Um, but mostly the right diet that that obvious that oftentimes we just completely overlook the stress and sleep and then sometimes the exercise which is number three is the appropriate movement or exercise throughout the day and that does not mean that you have to go to the gym or that you have to take up running and and start you know doing all that stuff it just means good movement and and really just using your heart using your cardiovascular system getting the blood flowing those types of things and then the last Uh, point number four would be a diet of properly prepared nutrient-dense foods and that is truly fundamental and where we get the vital micro and macro nutrients that we need in our diet so those are the four things I'm going to talk about so let's start with loving our heart through good sleep so sleep is truly not a luxury guys it's critical to good health so sleep helps your body repair itself and we need that restorative sleep It's not just about how many hours you're actually laying in bed with your eyes closed. It's how much actually restorative that deep sleep, how much of that deep deep state sleep are you actually getting? Um, Adults who sleep less than seven hours each night are more likely to say that they have health problems according to a recent study, and that includes heart attack, asthma, and even depression. Um, Some health problems raise the risk for heart disease, heart attack, and stroke. So let's take a few look, let's take a look at some of these health problems that are going to really make it much more likely that you actually would have some kind of a cardiovascular issue um, like heart attack or stroke. One is diabetes, type 2 diabetes specifically. So diabetes is a condition where blood builds up in your, I'm sorry, where sugar builds up in your blood due to insufficient insulin production by the beta cells of your pancreas or the cell's inability to respond to insulin any longer, which is also referred to as insulin resistance. So this can damage your blood vessels, which obviously if your blood vessels are damaged, that could lead to heart conditions or even a heart attack or a stroke. And there are a lot of studies that show getting enough sleep can actually help improve your blood sugar control. Uh, Type two diabetics are actually 56% more likely to have a heart attack. 
and you are less likely to survive a cardiovascular event if you are diabetic. So those are not good odds. So we definitely need to be watching that. Also, um, high blood pressure is another huge risk factor with heart disease, and this is made worse by not getting good sleep. Um, having high blood pressure is linked um, conclusively to not getting good sleep. During sleep, your blood pressure is designed to go down. So if you have issues with sleep, it can mean that your blood pressure is staying elevated much longer amounts of time than it's supposed to be. And high blood pressure is one of the leading risk disease, I'm sorry, leading risks for heart disease or stroke. So about 75 million Americans or one in three have high blood pressure. And um, definitely poor sleep is one of the things that affects that. Another uh, risk factor it, that is linked to sleep um, or that sleep can help with is obesity. So lack of sleep can lead to unhealthy weight gain. This is especially true for children and adolescents who need more sleep than adults. Not getting enough sleep may affect the part of the brain that controls hunger, your hypothalamus. It can also make your willpower non-existent, which makes grabbing those super sugary high carb foods that much harder to avoid. And I think most of us who have had a night where we either um, we're staying up late. Maybe you can remember, um, you know, maybe you're younger, you've been cramming uh, for some college exam and you stay up all night um, or you were up all night with a um, with a baby. You know, maybe you have a an infant in there, you know, got you up every couple of hours and you're never getting good sleep. It is hard to have any willpower at all the next day. You just are ravenous. I mean, I know if I get a bad night's sleep, you know, I start getting cravings that I don't normally have. So it definitely affects that part of your brain and can make it that much more difficult to eat healthful. Um, poor sleep habits also cause hormone dysregulation and two of the primary hormones that regulate appetite, leptin and ghrelin, are definitely um, affected by poor sleep quality and um, definitely can help lead to obesity. <clears throat> so those are some of the risk factors that kind of come along with getting poor sleep and vice versa, and that can also help increase your chances of having a cardiovascular event. Um, some sleep tips, guys, that are, I, I know I, I've given some of these before, but just in case this is your first time hearing these, um, some of kind of the basic ones that I always give across the board is turn the screens off um, one to two hours before bed at a minimum. Um, I mean, if you can do it more, you know, earlier than that, that's great, but definitely turning the screens off. So no TV, no phones, no iPads, none of that stuff. Um, you know, take some time to relax, maybe talk to your loved ones, play a board game, read a book, take a bath, um, a bath with Epsom salts. That is one of my favorite things to do before bed. So just get into a, a really nice sleep routine that, um, that you're starting a couple of hours before you go to sleep and that is not involving any kind of screens. And I know that can be a super hard one to give up. Um, I know it is for me and I have to be honest, I am not always the best at it. I mean, I can still um, tell you honestly that I am not always turning off my screens two hours before bed. Um, but I do try to do that and that is my goal. And I really do notice when I don't. Um, my sleep will be more restless and it's a little bit harder to like, you know, to, to go to sleep, to fall asleep. 
So definitely trying to do that is a big help. Another big help is not eating two to three hours before bed. This is another one that I have a hard time with personally. Uh, my life is very busy. We're, we've got a lot of things scheduled. You know, my husband and I both work. We both run companies. We've got five children. We've got, you know, all these uh, extra things going on all the time. And, um, you know, it's a lot. So sometimes, actually more often than I would like to admit, um, we are coming home because I do like to cook our dinners. Um, I don't want to just be running through and grabbing food somewhere all the time. Um, sometimes by the time I get home and I actually make us a, a meal, my husband and I specifically will sometimes not eat until 9, 9.30 at night. And that's terrible because my bedtime is usually 10.30 or 11. So I'll be eating dinner, you know, an hour, hour and a half before I go to bed. And that is, is not good. Um, you know, it takes a lot of, of energy for your body to digest food. So you are going to be digesting that food all night long and you are not going to be able to sleep or get re good restorative sleep, sleep properly if your body is having to digest food. So that's another um, really good thing to help um, get better restorative sleep is to try and avoid that. Um, another really great, easy tip, um, really two, they're kind of one in the same, is get outside. So you really need to be outside. I say, an hour, um, I'm sorry, a minimum of 20 to 30 minutes a day, um, minimum. So if you can just get outside and walk, um, especially if you can get some sun, that is so, so good for your vitamin D production. And it's just helps set your circadian rhythm. It's really good to try and do that first thing in the morning if you can. Um, you know, as soon as the sun's up, if you can go out and get some sun, really let your eyes drink that sunlight in, and that really does help set their circadian rhythm for you. Um, another tip would be kind of keeping your lights low and or wearing blue blockers in the evening so that the unnatural light that we have in our homes doesn't kind of mess with that circadian rhythm and so you can begin your melatonin production that will help you um, to be ready to go to sleep when it's time. And then you will get into, you'll have a nice natural, um, you know, you have sleep cycles throughout the night. And if you can start that in, the, in a nice natural way, the way you're supposed to, kind of as the sun goes down, you kind of dim the lights in your home or you're wearing blue blockers, melatonin production begins naturally. And then that's a good way to get yourself to go to sleep. Um, there was one more that I was just thinking of, oh, well, this is a no-brainer probably, but I know a lot of people talk about it. Not only getting the screen time out an hour to two hours before you go to bed, but don't keep your phone next to your bed. So not only are the EMFs a problem and you don't want that going on while you're sleeping anyway for a multitude of reasons, nobody needs the phone buzzing, dinging, lighting up next to you when you're trying to go to sleep because who can resist that, right? You think you got to look and you got to see what's this notification or who's trying to get a hold of me. So, you know, do yourself a favor, plug it into your bathroom or out in the hallway or somewhere where you cannot see it or reach it while you're sleeping. Just kind of get it out of your general vicinity. Um, so that's another good way to do that. And there was one more that I really wanted to touch on and um, it just totally flew out of my head. <laughs> so, oh, darn it. Um, okay, 
So those are kind of some tips. Oh, another one that I like to do is I like to use essential oils. So I will, um, I, I have a essential oil diffuser next to my bed and every night when I go to bed I put a little bit of filtered water in there and a few drops of lavender oil or I like doTERRA brand um, and they have one called um, serenity and that's my favorite so if I have the serenity I'll use that and I just put a few drops in that next to my bed and then I breathe those essential oils in as I'm relaxing I usually sit and read for a few minutes so I can breathe those in as I'm kind of relaxing and getting into um, kind of my the right uh, mental space to go to sleep. Um, I remember what I was gonna say. My other kind of tip for you um, for getting good restorative sleep is really to try and get uh, a good circadian rhythm started. So I know that we can't all go to bed when the sun sets and get up when the sun rises, right? Like that's that's not um, realistic these days. And I understand that, I get that. But that is really the way we are meant to, to do it. I mean, that's the way we, when, there, when there was no light, we would have to go to sleep because, I mean, what else are you going to do? Um, except perhaps you'd sit around a campfire or something like that. And that is a, a very low, it's a very different light than the, than the blue light that we have in our homes now. So one really good tip for you to really help kind of get into this night's sleep pattern is try to go to sleep within the same like hour of time and get up within the same hour of time every day. So for example, I try to go to bed between, I'd say I shoot for 10 to 11. That's my goal. I usually try to be in bed and ready to go to sleep at 10 o'clock, but I might read for like a half an hour or something. Sometimes I'm in bed at 9.30 and I might read for a half hour and I'm asleep, 10 but um, I really try to shoot for that 10 to 11 so obviously that is not following when the Sun goes down because right now we're in the winter time I mean it's dark by maybe six o'clock right now so you know so we're not getting um, you know it's I, I'm way I'm staying up way past when the Sun goes down but just getting my body set to the circadian rhythm so I go to sleep then and then every morning I'm generally up between 6:15 and I'd say 8.15 because I do like to sleep in, in the, on the weekends. Um, Saturdays and Sundays, I generally try not to get out of bed until like 8. So, But I naturally will usually wake up sometime between 6 and 7 because during the week, I'm up by 6.15 to 6.30 every day. So my body has now set this natural circadian rhythm. So without any kind of alarm, I start to wake. Um, my body starts producing cortisol, knows it's time to get up, even though it's still dark outside at that time between 6 and 7 a.m my body starts saying hey it's time to get up so it makes it kind of there's a natural break in your sleep cycle there's a natural time to wake up and if you can kind of get that down that makes it so much easier to go to sleep and so much easier to get up in the morning um so i know that's kind of a bummer some people are like no you know i like to sleep in on the weekends and and you still can do that but just trying not to you know trying to keep it within that hour would be really really helpful and I, you know, I stretch it. I, on the weekends, it's, you know, an hour to two hours um, around when I normally get up, but that works. So that's better than nothing. 
So hopefully you can take some of those tips and that'll help you. Okay, so let's move to stress management. So chronically high levels of stress can lead to chronically high levels of stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. Those can lead to high blood pressure, irregular heartbeats, chest pain, um, even the way your blood clots, which can lead to increased re risk for blockage or for stroke. Um, so that uh, we need to get the stress under control, guys. And I know none of us are going to like check out of life and be like, okay, I'm not driving a car anymore, so no more traffic, and I'm not showing up to work anymore, so no more stress about if I'm going to be late, and you know, I'm just going to sell the kids so I don't have to deal with <laughs> all the stress that raising kids comes. Nobody's going to do that, right? So we just have to figure out a way to manage it. We live in this very stressful, very busy life, so we really need to work on it. So right off the bat, one thing I'm going to say is turn your notifications off on your phone. Like seriously, turn them off already. <laughs> like, I mean, you go anywhere where there's a group of people and it's like ding, 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 buzz, bing, like constantly everywhere around you. Turn them off. That cannot be good. And though I have not seen a study on this, I'm sure there are some or there are some coming. That cannot be good for stress levels that has got to, to to elicit a cortisol response i mean there's just no way that all this constant notifications and this feeling that we are constantly have to do something or need something or we're like constantly on call it cannot be good so just start by simply turning off the notifications so either silence them or even better yet on different platforms where you can literally turn them off, then do it. Like my notifications, you know, I apologize up front. I've said this in podcasts before. My Facebook and um, Instagram, I do not get notifications whatsoever. So if you send me a message on there, it could take days or even, it's been known to take a couple of weeks sometimes because I don't go, I don't get a notification. So if I don't, you know, manually go in and check those, I don't even know that I have messages and that's okay. You know, I'm sorry if I don't get back to you right away, but I'm okay with that because it is important to me that I don't have that added level of, of stress and that added level of people need me. Um, you know, I figure if you really need to get a hold of me, like I've said before, send me an email, um, Jessica at jessicatai.com. That's the best way to reach me. I do, you know, I have set times that I try to go to my email inbox every day. And that way it keeps me from feeling like I'm constantly in this reactionary mode and trying to react to everything. So start there. Another great thing to help manage stress is deep breathing techniques. So these can be just, um, when you get up in the morning, taking five, six, seven deep inhales and exhales and just kind of letting yourself, you know, really wake up, just really get that blood flowing, get your, filling your lungs up with air and just kind of wakening yourself, doing a nice big stretch in the morning before you get out of bed. Doing that before you go to bed at night is another good thing to do is just to take some really deep, calming breaths before you lay down and go to bed. Another great way to help mediate stress is meditation or prayer. So, and I'm not talking, you don't have to become like, you know, this um, awesome, you know, meditation guru who is doing 20 minutes a day. I mean, even if you can just get two, three, four, five minutes a day of prayer or meditation, just where you try to just shut everything else out, 
Don't worry about anything else that's going on. Concentrate on you, your breaths. Just imagine the blood circulating through your veins and your arteries, your heart beating, your breath in and out of your body, just how vibrant and alive and well you are. Those are that is a super good way to help relieve stress. Um, another great way is journaling. And you can do this with um, another tip that I have is positivity or, or gratitude. And that could really go along very easily with journaling. So you could journal and like a, do a, like a gratitude journal where you just come up with a couple of things that you are grateful for at the end of every day. Or you could start out your day with a positivity. Um, my husband has some... Um, I can't kind of just um, forgot what it is that he calls those, but basically um, he can see that I'm not very well versed in this and he keeps trying to get me to do it. And I know he's totally right and I should be, but he has um, basically like some mantras that he says every single morning to himself, about himself, about our lives, about our family, and they're all positive. So it's kind of this um, just you know, he'll say them to himself. He reads the same thing every morning about, you know, he is healthy, successful, um, you know, grateful, just go down the list. So just write out things that you want. They may not be things that you necessarily feel about yourself right now, but things that you want to feel, the, the way that you want to feel. Write those down, those positive feelings. If you want to, if maybe right now you don't feel healthy, but you want to be healthy, write that down. Write how grateful you are that you are healthy and tell your body that every single day when you get up, that you are healthy, that you are beautiful, that you are um, in shape and active and and you are going to live to 120 years old or whatever your goal is. <laughs> That's mine and my husband's. So we uh, talk about that. Um, that, you know, that you that you are um, kind and generous and, and you are a good friend to people and you have good friends and just taught, you know, really speak that stuff into existence. So another really good way to manage stress is, is um, exercise. So we talked about that um, a little bit in the beginning, which we'll move to next about one of the ways to help mitigate uh, heart issues and heart disease. So exercise also helps to mitigate stress, just getting out and moving. So this doesn't have to be where you're going to the gym and running on the treadmill for 45 minutes or getting into a boot camp class or whatever. If you enjoy doing that, that's fine. You can do that. But maybe for you, it's just 20 minutes that you take a walk in the morning or after dinner, taking a walk, which is a really great time, by the way, to help lower um, your blood sugar and to help with digestion is to take a walk after dinner. Um, so doing something like that, or really anytime you eat, taking a walk after you eat. Um, so that would be good. And then of course, getting good sleep, back to sleep again. That really helps us with stress management. If you're chronically tired, it's really hard for your body to be able to deal with stress. And, and just being chronically tired is a stressor all of its own. Okay, so let's move to exercise. So I'm gonna talk about three different kinds and we're gonna do this very briefly, but we have aerobic activity. So that is really good for cardiovascular health. Um, obviously that's also often called cardio. We refer to it as cardio. So that would be like any type of aerobic activity where you're running or doing, you know, um, a boot camp or you're doing, um, what is the one? Uh, <laughs> like aerobic class. I can't think of it right now, but it was really popular 
Oh, I can't. I don't know why my brain is so off this morning. I slept really good. <laughs> it's been a good, good day, but I'll think of it eventually. But um, anyway, so this it helps improve circulation, which can help reduce blood pressure, and it helps to normalize your heart rate. It's also great for lowering blood sugar. Um, doing an aerobic activity or cardio workout. Um, Resistance training is another one. So that is a great, that's a strength workout. So that can help to raise actually your LDL, which is referred to as your good cholesterol and helps lower your LDL, the bad cholesterol. So especially when that's combined with an aerobic activity, it also helps to reduce body fat, which can lower some of those other risk factors that we talked about. And then stretching or yoga. So stretching and breath work for flexibility and activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, that can be like really immensely helpful for lowering inflammation that can lead to heart-related health issues. Because in the end, really what causes the majority of um, heart issues at all, any type of cardiovascular issue is inflammation. It's really at the heart of pretty much any disease. Um, Okay, so nutrition diet. So let's move on to this. And this is where we're going to kind of park for a little bit. We're going to talk about the macros and micros, talk about um, heart healthy whole grains. Are they really that healthy? And kind of what's going on with that? And then what about fat? And then we're going to talk a little bit about cholesterol and then kind of wrap it up. Like what's all of this mean for you? So I think we're all familiar with the USDA food guidelines, right? Like we have the introduced in 1992, we had the food pyramid. Right, and we can all kind of picture that in our heads. Probably, we grew up with this. Most of us um, are familiar. There was a version before uh, the 1992, but in 1992, we had one that we had the bottom says uh, bread, cereal, rice, and pasta. Right, so that's the base. That's supposed to be our foundation. Is bread, cereal, rice, pasta group. So we all grew up hearing that. That's six to eleven servings a day of that stuff. And then in the middle, or right above that. Kind of in the middle, we had the vegetable group, which is three to five servings, and the fruit group, which is two to four servings. And then right above that, we have two to three servings of milk, yogurt, cheese, and two to three servings of meat, poultry, um, dry beans, fish, um, eggs, nuts, that kind of thing, so your proteins. And then at the very top was fats, oils, and sweets, and that said, use sparingly. So not even any kind of servings for that, just use it sparingly. Then we fast forward to 2011, and in 2011, the government's MyPlate was introduced to us. And on there, we have vegetables. This was more of like a pie chart. doesn't give us um, any, it doesn't tell us the um, servings, but it gives us a pie chart. And the largest groups on there are vegetables and grains. And then the, uh, and then next down from those are fruits and proteins. And those were fruits and proteins were equal amounts. And then we had dairy off to the side. So we no longer even see fats or oils on here at all anymore. So fat is completely eliminated eliminated from the MyPlate um, guidelines. So let's kind of talk about the macros since we're talking about um, nutrition. And let's talk about, I think you guys, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably very familiar with macros, especially keto um, macros that if you weren't familiar with them before, you probably are now because you're like, oh yeah, I know what macros are. That's what everybody talks about. Fat, protein, carbohydrates, and you need, you know, X percentage of each to be keto, right? So um, that's kind of how we know them. But um, briefly, so one macronutrient uh, category is proteins. And so our body breaks proteins down into amino acids. There are 22 amino acids in all. 10 of them are essential to our bodies. So they can be used for multitude of purposes and processes in our bodies. So 
Some of that includes formation of nerves, muscles, organs, and flesh. And obviously that is going to pertain to heart. Um, since our heart is full of nerves and it is an organ and it is a muscle. And then it also, um, they contribute to enzyme production and they also contribute to creation of antibodies. So proteins are super important. And I think it's also worth mentioning that animal proteins are the only source of complete proteins. And they almost always come packaged together with fat because our body needs fat to be able to properly use the amino acids. So it's very interesting the way nature does that, right? So the next macronutrient category we're going to talk about is carbohydrates. So this is actually the only macronutrient category that is not essential. The only non-essential category. These turn into sugar in our bodies and we rely on insulin to be able to get that glucose into the cells to be stored as energy. Our muscles and liver extor, store our excess carbohydrates in the form of what's called glycogen. And then um, I would say vegetables are the best source of carbs because they come packed with fiber, little to no sugar, and that makes absorption easy, uh, you know, of it easier and the breakdown slower. So therefore the body, um, it's easier on the body. And then they're also very rich, obviously, in vitamins and minerals, which we need. So um, love veggies for that. So when I talk carbs, that's my form of carbs. Um, it's not going to be breads or pasta or any of the other things that the government tells us we need six to 11 servings of. Fats. So this is the other macronutrient. So we need fats. And I would dare say that between fats and proteins, those are two, your two absolute most important carbohydrate, or I'm sorry, macronutrients. So fats are the only other essential macronutrient along with protein. Um, essential means our body cannot make everything that it needs. We have to be able to get these in. So fat is largely responsible for building healthy cells, including our hormones, brain, and heart cells along with cholesterol, go figure. And they provide satiety for much longer periods of time than other, um, some other types of fuel like carbohydrates, for example. Um, more than 70% of our brains are fat. So without adequate amounts of the right fats, your brain actually does struggle just to function efficiently. Your heart needs fat, specifically omega-3s and omega-6s and saturated fats to provide the energy and building blocks that it needs. Fat is actually the heart's preferred fuel source. It is essential to heart health. Fat allows your body to be able to absorb critical fat-soluble vitamins. So we all know A, D, E, and K are fat-soluble vitamins. If you do not have fat in your diet, you cannot properly assimilate those vitamins. Impossible. Um, lack of D can lead to cardiovascular disease. Lack of E can result in fragile red blood cells. And lack of K can cause issues with blood that can result in excessive bruising, problems with clotting, those types of things. So there's three of the four fat-soluble vitamins that specifically um, have consequences to your cardiovascular system. And then fat reduces inflammation in the body. So it helps to support a healthy immune system, your prostaglandin production, and your hormone production. So fat is super, super important. And then I would say there's a fourth macronutrient category, and that is actually water. So our bodies are more than 50% water, it is found in every tissue of our body. We need water to improve our blood viscosity, making it easier for for things to travel through our blood. It aids in detoxification through, you know, 
bowels, toxins, sweat, urine, or I'm sorry, toxins in the sweat, urine, that type of thing, elimination of those things. It transports the nutrients around our body. It helps to lubricate our joints. It moisturizes the skin. It maintains elasticity of muscles like the heart. Um, and really, I think the ideal amount of water is you want to drink about a half of your body weight daily in ounces, but you don't want to exceed 128 ounces. So, um, you know, if you weigh 260 pounds, you're still going to just drink 128 ounces of water a day. That's what you want to cap at. So important to know. Okay, micronutrients. So let's talk about this real quick and why these are important. These are very important for our heart. Um, there's vitamins and minerals that we need that are referred to as micronutrients. And I'm gonna talk just briefly about the ones that are spe specific to heart health. So magnesium and calcium, right? We hear about that all the time. I think you know how important that is. Magnesium can be another type of bedtime routine that you do. Um, but really, I hesitate to say magnesium before bed because not for everyone. There are some people that taking magnesium for bed is before they go to bed is really not helpful. Um, sometimes you may be better off taking magnesium in the morning. So you kind of have to figure that out and play with that. So I actually do take a magnesium citrate every night before bed. Um, and I take about 1500 milligrams of that, but magnesium and calcium are essential to heart health. So calcium triggers contractions and relaxations of muscles, um, including the heart. So calcium is super important for the heart and for heart health. And your ability to absorb calcium is really important. Magnesium is also important because it counterbalances calcium because without the appropriate calcium to magnesium ratio, the calcium will not work. And um, you also could get like irregular heartbeats. That is a, another sign and often a sign of a magnesium deficiency. So um, you need that magnesium to help counterbalance the contractions and relaxations that calcium is helping to um, get going in your muscles and in your heart. Coenzyme Q10. So that is a big one. Your heart needs a lot of energy. It never takes a vacation, never takes a break. It beats approximately 86,400 times a day. That's day after day, year after year. So CoQ10 literally recharges the energy, energy production factories known as mitochondria that are in your cells. It's needed to generate the cellular energy called ATP. The cells use ATP to power everything you do. ATP is what you need to pump the blood from your heart through your body. You need to, to burn fat. You have to use it to snore, digest food, dance the rumba, whatever. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You require ATP. And CoQ10 is an essential nutrient to help produce ATP. So very, very important to have that, um, especially if you're on a statin. If you are currently taking a statin for cholesterol medication, absolutely, 100%, no questions asked, you should be on CoQ10. You should probably also be on selenium because statins also deplete your selenium production. Um, but we're not really going to touch on that uh, in this talk, but uh, definitely CoQ10 and really should be on selenium as well. Okay, so let's move on to omega-3. So omega-3 fatty acids, these are found in plant foods such as flaxseed and in animal foods such as cold water fish, grass-fed animal meats, etc. It is important to know, however, that while you can find omega-3 fatty acids in plant foods, please remember that we talked about they're, they're not, this is a different, actually, I don't think I talked about it in this 
episode, sorry. Um, but it is a different form of omega-3. So it's what's called um, ALA. So in order to, per, but we cannot use ALA. That is the plant's version of omega-3. We have to convert that to EPA or DHA. So our body can do that. It does take other nutrients. It does take other cofactors. It is an enzymatic process that our bodies can do. But just know that while we can get it that way, it is not the best source. The best source would be an animal sourced omega-3 because that is already in the, um, it's already in the the version that we needed. It's in the version that our bodies can use. So fish oil has actually been shown to reduce the risk of having a heart attack or stroke. And it's been shown to improve insulin sensitivity. And it helps decrease the risk of cardio of sudden cardio events or death from those events. So kind of a big deal, <laughs> kind of important for it to have omega-3s. Um, the most important action that I would say for omega-3s though, especially as it re, not really, especially for heart health, but really as it relates to our bodies as a whole is that they are very anti-inflammatory. So inflammation either causes or promotes or amplifies pretty much every degenerative disease known, including heart disease. So low levels of omega-3 have been associated with everything from heart disease to AD to ADHD, so I definitely recommend omega-3 supplements and or foods that are high in omega-3 supplements for just about everyone, and that includes children. Okay, moving on in the vitamins and minerals, um, niacin. This is also, this is B3. So niacin is accepted really even by mainstream doctors as, um, as a cholesterol-lowering vitamin. But I think its real value is that it lowers LPA, an independent risk factor for heart disease and heart attacks. It also raises HDL cholesterol, specifically HDL2 cholesterol, which is said to be the most beneficial of the HDL subclasses. So it's also um, the only problem that is known with niacin as is the dreaded niacin flush. So if you've ever taken niacin and you get that, you know, your cheeks get rosy and you kind of get that pens and needles feeling, um, and you kind of usually I'll just get it kind of, if you get enough of a flush going, you can really light up your whole body. It's kind of interesting. Um, it's not dangerous, but it's uncomfortable. So, um, a lot of people won't take niacin because they just don't like that feeling, but you can also get sustained release niacin, but it really doesn't work very well. Um, it just doesn't have the same effects, uh, as, uh, as the non-sustained release. So it's really good to just get it from food sources. And as a nutritional therapy practitioner, that's kind of my, um, that's kind of my gig anyway, is <laughs> try to get everybody to get what they need from food sources rather than supplementing and trying to have shakes and pills and potions for everything. But there are some instances that you really need to supplement. Like I said, if you're on a statin, I would really like for you to be supplementing with CoQ10 and selenium. Those are things that you can get through foods, but it's really, really good to supplement with those because your body is just going to need a lot more than you're probably going to be able to ingest. Um, L-carnitine, this is another one. L-carnitine is like the shuttle bus that transports the fatty acids into the mitochondria. So remember, those are the little energy plants and the cells that we talked about. Um, those fats then can be burned for energy. And that 
is amazing and we need that. So because the heart gets 60% of its energy from fat, it is really important that the body has enough L-carnitine to shuttle those fatty acids into the heart muscles cells. Very important. And like I said before, that is its preferred fuel source. A number of studies have shown that L-carnitine can improve exercise endurance in heart patients. And in some research, um, they have even shown that it improves the survival rate if you do have a cardiovascular event. So that's kind of important. Okay, so let's talk Lee, real quickly about where you can get these vitamins and minerals, okay? Because I know, you know, I'm giving you all these um, great ideas and then you're like, okay, well, where do I even get them? Okay, so magnesium, um, food sources for magnesium, spinach, chard, pumpkin seeds, almonds, avocado, grass-fed dairy, sea vegetables, wild-caught fish, eggs, coffee, and dark chocolate. So there are other sources that you can get these vitamins and minerals from, but I'm going to give you the keto sources, the sources that are not going to give you inflammation because you're eating, um, you know, high carbohydrate, high sugar sources. These are the best sources for you to get. Okay. Um, calcium, you can get calcium from seeds, grass fed dairy, almonds, leafy greens, sardines, mm, salmon, broccoli, clams, sea vegetables, anchovies, and eggs. CoQ10, organ meats, number one place. You're going to get a lot of great CoQ10 out of organ meats. So if you can mix that into different meals that you make and whatnot. Um, fatty fish, grass-fed beef again. Um, and yes, I am making a delineation here between, between factory-raised meats and grass-fed meats. There is a huge difference. This is not me trying to be uppity or say, oh, you better eat you know, grass-fed, yada, yada, yada. They, you truly especially when it comes to like CoQ10 and omega-3s, the difference in the ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s, and even if these, if grass-fed meats have some of these, or if beef has some of these, or lamb um, has some of these vitamins and minerals at all, is if it is, is grass-fed. Um, there are many, many things that on commercially raised meats are depleted completely because it is not the animal's normal diet. And so just like our bodies, when we are not giving them what they need, um, we are omnivores and we are meant to eat meats and fruits and vegetables, meats and plant animal foods and plant foods. When we are not getting that variety, our body can still survive, but it is going to have to beg, borrow, and steal from other sources inside our bodies to be able to do what it needs to do with what we are giving it. It is the same exact thing for these animals. So when you have a cow that is supposed to be a vegetarian, it eats grass and then you force it to eat. I guess I shouldn't even say vegetarian necessarily because though they do feed it other things, um, but corn would still be considered vegetarian food, but they, but corn and grains are not a cow's normal diet. It does not have the ability to digest those properly and it's not getting what it needs out of that food. So not only does it make the animal sick and then they pump it through full of hormones and antibiotics to help keep it alive long enough to be able to slaughter it and put it on your plate for food. But those, then that cow has to use vitamins and minerals that we need that are vitally important to us to be able to counteract all the hormones and the medications and the bad feed that it's getting. So it's just all the way around. It's not a good thing. So, so I, I don't say this 
to make you feel bad about not buying grass-fed beef. You know, buy what you can, do the best you can. But these are the sources that are that where you get these things. And sometimes these vitamins and minerals cannot even be found in the conventionally raised meat. Okay, so that's that's why I am saying grass-fed because these are where you can actually find these things. Um, again, so um, CoQ10, grass-fed beef, pork, chicken, nuts, seeds, cruciferous vegetables, so that's like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels, um, cabbages, those types of things. Grass-fed butter, grass-fed milk, and eggs. Um, L-carnitine, grass-fed beef, grass-fed dairy, fish, eggs, pastured lamb, and free-range chicken. So again, it's free-range, pastured, everything. Um, these animals need the vitamin D, they need the grass, they need the fresh air in order to be able to make all of these nutrients. Um, Omega-3s, fatty fish, oysters, flax seeds, again, that's ALA version of it, walnuts, that's the ALA version of it, um, organic soybeans and only organic soybeans um, do not ever buy anything other than organic ones and even then i kind of caution against that and again that is the ala version of it um, that we have to convert eggs pasture raised meats and grass-fed beef then niacin that's b3 we can get that from chicken liver tuna turkey salmon sardines grass-fed beef nuts seeds mushrooms avocados and eggs and then vitamin k that is green leafy vegetables cruciferous vegetables grass-fed beef liver fish scallions fermented dairy cucumbers and eggs okay so that gives you a pretty good rundown of some of these different ways we can get those okay so let's kind of circle back to the healthy whole grains. So that has got to be the answer, right? Because that's what, here we just talked about all these micronutrients and macronutrients that you need um, to have heart health and just to have overall health. But we've been told for decades that you have to eat six to 11 servings of grains and, and wheat products and just whole grains. Like this is what we need to be eating, right? So what you can't see is that I am... I have a chart here that says the rise of overweight or obesity coincides with the beginning of our dietary guidelines. So it shows in the 1960s, the percentage of overweight and obese people was down around 45% um, in the uh, 1960s. And how as it has continued to climb and climb and climb, the launch of our dietary guidelines for Americans were in the 1980s. How we went from that, we are now, we have now almost doubled, we have doubled. By this point, we have now doubled the percentage of obese people in this country now at the year that we're in. And if we go back to what we were talking about before about the statistics, um, I wanted to pull that up again, and I, I kind of lost where that was. Um, oh, obesity rates have increased over the past decade. An estimated forty uh, percent of adults are obese now. That is crazy, guys. Forty percent of adults are obese, um, and that's not just overweight adults. That is actually obese adults. Um, so this shows back in the 1960s, I think I said we started at 40%, that is not correct. Um, we started way, way, way down and how um, just we have doubled, more than doubled as we've gone through the decades here to arrive in 2019. 
Okay, so you're like, how's that even possible? Because Americans, well, it must be because we don't listen. We're not following the dietary guidelines. Our, you know, we must be that we're just not doing everything, right? Because if we were following the dietary guidelines, then these epidemics, including heart disease, would not be happening, correct? Because our government told us what to do to keep that from happening. So then I have another chart here that says Americans have followed the US dietary guidelines. From 1970 to 2014, it charts that the food in the guideline that the guidelines recommended to increase were fresh vegetables. Well, guess what? We did. We increased those 20% over that time period. Fresh fruits increased 35% over that time period. We increased our grain consumption 28% over that time period. And vegetable oils, 87% over that time period. Because remember, we were told don't eat animal fats anymore. You need to eat vegetable oils. These rancid, bottled, they're not even vegetables. Not one of them comes from vegetables. They are seed oils, but called vegetable oils because that sounds a lot better. Sounds healthy, right? So we have upped that 87% from 1970, guys. Then um, we have, uh, let's see, and okay, that's it. So then the food guidelines that recommended that we decrease certain things as well. And so you would think, okay, well, we must not have decreased those. Um, nope, wrong again. Uh, red meat de de has decreased 28% our consumption of red meat. Our consumption of eggs has gone down 13%. Our whole milk has gone down 79% because you know we were told that we need to drink skim milk, right? Not whole milk. Never mind the fact that skim milk has like four times the amount of sugar because when you take all the fat out of it, it doesn't taste so good. So then they have to put a bunch of sugar back into it. Um, let's see, our animal fat consumption is down 27%. Um, and our butter consumption is down 9% because you know those are the things that the government has told us cause heart disease. So we have to cut all this down. Okay, so this doesn't really make sense, right? So. All, so our obesity has climbed, it's skyrocketed over the same time period that we have followed the dietary guidelines. So that doesn't really make sense because our health should be getting better, not worse, because this is what we were told to do to be healthier. So it must just be then that we eat too much sugar and refined carbs, right? So it it's not that we're not following the guidelines, we are, but we're just not eating the six to 11 servings of heart healthy whole grains, right? You'd be wrong again. I have another chart here that says Americans have cut back on refined carbohydrates and sugar while increasing whole grains. So again, over the decades, that the same time period, we have cut down refined grains by 12%. We have cut down total sugar intake by 14%, total added sugar intake by 24%, and we have increased whole grain consumption by 30%. 3%. Okay, so what's the deal then? Because if you're like me, you're going, wait a minute. One plus one doesn't equal two here. Like this is, we were told to do this, we did it, and things are getting worse, not better. How is that even possible? So let's kind of look at a little bit of the statistics here. So America's health has not improved since 1980. Here's the thing. The adult obesity rates have doubled. They are set to increase another 50% by 2030. That's crazy, guys. Childhood obesity and, di and diabetes diagnosis have tripled. Now, wait a minute. We were told not, we were told to up our grains, right? Our whole grains, our heart healthy whole grains. Yet 
childhood obesity and diabetes has tripled? How is that even possible? I just read you guys the charts. We've cut everything out. Two-thirds of U.S. adults are overweight and one-third is obese. 25 million adults have diabetes. Rates of heart-related diseases have increased year after year. Does anybody know what the definition of insanity is? Let me tell you. It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Don't you feel like we're caught in this crazy, like, experiment? We're like living experience. Experiments. Somebody said... Hey, based on this hypothesis, I think this is what we should do. And then everybody said, okay, let's do it. And so we've been in this experiment since the 1960s and nothing's getting better, guys. It's getting worse. But instead of the mainstream media and, and your you know typical medical doctors, which I understand, they don't get any nutrition training anyway, but instead of them and researchers and you know the USDA, instead of these these governing bodies looking at this and going, you know what? This doesn't seem quite right because things aren't panning out like we thought that they were, that they would. You would think somebody would step up and be like, we need to do something about this. But no, it's still going on. So is this the perfect poison for our hearts? All of these whole grains? I would submit to you that they are. As our natural appetite for as our national appetite for flour has inched up, so is the incident of diet-related ills such as obesity, heart disease, diabetes. Coincidence? I think not. A carbohydrate in wheat called amylopectin A is more easily converted to blood sugar than just about any other carbohydrate. So get this. Two slices of bread made with whole wheat flour raises blood sugar higher than 6 teaspoons of table sugar and higher than many candy bars. Seriously? Like, oh my gosh, like I feel totally duped right now. I don't know about you guys, but I fell into that hard, healthy whole grains. I switched, took all the white bread out of my house, you know, was feeding my kids whole wheat sandwich bread and all that kind of stuff. Craziness, right? If I have this quote from Dr. William Davis, which I love. Um, if people, if we were, if we were evil scientists and said, let's make the most perfect poison, it would be wheat, says preventative cardiologist William Davis. A diet high in grain stokes inflammation. When blood sugar spikes, glucose builds up in the blood like too many standby passengers on a flight. When glucose loiters in the blood, it gets into trouble by attaching itself to nearby proteins. The result is a chemical reaction called glycation a pro-inflammatory process that plays a role in a host of inflammatory diseases, everything from cataracts to arthritis to, you guessed it, heart disease. Not everyone agrees that grains are essential or even beneficial for health. Ludwig points out that humans rarely ate grains before the advent of agriculture. The human requirement for grain is zero says Dr. William Davis, and he agrees the promotion of healthy whole grains in the diet by the government, dietitians, and physicians will go down as the biggest national nutritional blunder ever made. One benefit of avoiding grains or even just dialing back your intake of them is that it gives you room and reason to include a rich variety of other nutritious whole foods like dark leafy greens, even sweet potatoes, nuts, seeds, etc. Your body will thank you. So, Let's take a look at fat. So as you know, and I know, we like fat. We want to eat fat, but maybe you're just starting to kind of dabble in this whole ketogenic lifestyle and you're still a little bit nervous and you just cannot wrap your head around the fact that it is okay to eat fats. So let's talk a little bit about fat. 
Is bacon really bad for you? Saturated fat and cholesterol? Let's talk about the truth behind the lie. So recent studies have actually discovered evidence that saturated fat may be good for you. Food authorities and nutrition experts around the world, that includes the U.S. Department of Agriculture, American Heart Association, and Dr. Oz and Oprah Winfrey, have continually reminded us that saturated fat is bad. It clogs our arteries and increases our chances of having a stroke or heart attack, right? So here's the ultimate question. Has anyone really proven that direct cause of heart attack and stroke is the buildup of saturated fat or cholesterol in our, in our arteries? Is either actually the culprit for one of those? Hmm, so let's talk about it. Let's figure out where we even got this idea, right? So the diet heart hypothesis was a result of Ansel Keys' seven country study that was done in 1958. So let's just hit on a few points because we don't have time to pick this apart. We certainly could, um, but let's just talk about a couple of points that are interesting to note. So that study was actually 22 countries in that study, not seven. That's interesting you say. Why would a researcher include only seven studies out of 22 that were studied? Well, that's an easy answer because only seven of them gave him the graph that he wanted to prove that and or to correlate <laughs> that saturated fat and cholesterol and heart disease were linked. So in order to get that correlation, he had to only use the seven countries that showed that. Um, there was actually no real connection. And Yudkin, another uh, scientist, found that it was actually sugar that had the connection to heart disease. Well, he was nearly, uh, nearly cost him his career to even come up with that hypothesis because um, Ansel Keys was known as like a real bully in the scientific um, community. And he really just laid into Yudkin and made it his personal um you know, job to just completely discredit this poor guy who realistically had the right answer. In November of 2016, an issue of JAMA Internal Medicine published documents showing that the Sugar Research Foundation, which is now called the Sugar Association, paid scientists in the 1960 to tell the story that it was fat and cholesterol, not sugar. That is a fact. That was just released in November of 2016, in case you missed that. The diet heart hypothesis is the greatest scientific deception of this century and perhaps any century, says George Mann, American physician and scientist. For decades, we have been educated that fats are bad, cholesterol and dietary fats will clog our arteries and lead to heart disease. Doctors are convinced as well, and they provide cholesterol-lowering medications. Working toward the goal of putting everyone, guys, listen to this, including our children, on preventative cholesterol-lowering medications. That is the goal. That is the goal that the drug companies have set out to obtain is to put everyone on quote-unquote preventative cholesterol-lowering medications. So what's the real story with statins? Let's just talk about a couple of things with statins. And listen, if you're on them, I am not telling you to get off of your statin drugs. I am not giving medical advice I would never tell you to stop a drug, but I would urge you to do more research on your own and talk to your doctor about other things that you can do that perhaps would keep you from having to take a statin drug. There are 300 adverse health effects, including more than 250 published independent studies showing myotoxicity, which is muscle damage, neurotoxicity, which is nerve damage, hepatoxicity, which is liver damage, endocrine disruption, cancer promoting, diabetes promoting, cardiovascular damaging, and birth defect causing. 
That's what statins do. Beyond the known fact that statin drugs deplete the body of two essential nutrients, coenzyme Q10 and selenium, they are all also highly myotoxic and neurotoxic. So again, that's muscle toxicity and, and neurological toxicity. Because the heart is one of the most nerve-saturated muscles in the human body, these two modes of toxicity combined represent the perfect storm of cardiotoxicity and is highly ironic fact considering statin drugs are promoted as having life-saving cardioprotective properties. Cancer promoting. With statistically significant increase in cancer incidence and deaths, in some trials, the minimal cardiovascular benefit is far eclipsed by the cancer mortality with statin drugs. In one of the only long-term trials, there was a doubling of the incident of ductal and lobular breast cancer in women taking statins for more than 10 years. One of the many reasons that women should never be treated with these medications, states Dr. Kelly Brogan. And they are diabetes promoting, including type 3 diabetes, which if you've been around this um, podcast or other podcasts like this in the health realm for a while, you know that type 3 diabetes is also how they refer to Alzheimer's disease. A low serum cholesterol level has also been found to serve as a biological marker of major depression and suicidal behavior, whereas high cholesterol is protective. In a study by Davison and Kaplan, the incident of suicidal ideation among adults with mood disorders was more than two and a half times greater in those taking statins. Moreover, several studies have shown that low cholesterol is associated with lower cognition and Alzheimer's disease and that high cholesterol is protective. This is especially important for women, guys. So if you're listening to this and you're a woman, statin drugs really, they do more damage to women than even they do to men. So again, take a nice hard look at that. And then, um, so kind of back to the previous question. So has there ever been a link between saturated fat and cholesterol and our re- increased risk for heart disease? And the answer is no. Well, not exactly. So there is not one single study that exists that can conclude natural dietary fats and cholesterol levels in humans cause heart disease of any type. But here's what we do know. Restricting saturated fat makes our cell membranes weak and fragile. And the studies that they have shown that there's an issue is when they have done those studies on PUFAs. That is our, those chemically laden, those, those chemically processed oils, also referred to as vegetable oils, that, that are horrible for producing our cells and, and building those cells in our body. Saturated fats contain fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. We talked about before, super, super important. EPA and DHA are a necessity for optimal brain health, heart, and nerve function. Your lungs need a substance called, excuse me, surfactant, surfactant in huge amounts for you to be able to breathe normally. And guess what it's made of? It's made of 100% saturated fats, guys. Saturated fat is also necessary for good calcium absorption. Any link to increased levels of osteoporosis um, and the advice to restrict these beneficial fats, I wonder? because our rates of osteoporosis are also skyrocketing. Kind of interesting, right? And there are studies that definitely show the link between the chemically processed PUFAs and an increased risk of cardiovascular events. So they like to lump all fats into that category and say, see, we've shown that fats create that, but that's not true. It's these 
these rancid bad fats are what are you know leading to that not good fats so i just want to kind of wrap this up by saying that in summary sleep is super important component of overall health of your heart okay we definitely need to be getting good quality sleep stress management and regular exercise is necessary to lower cardiovascular risks Inflammation is the real underlying cause of nearly every chronic disease, including heart disease. And what leads to inflammation? Blood glucose, high levels of blood sugar, high levels of of insulin, the constant need for insulin, this um, glycation of our cell receptor sites, the damage to our um, to the proteins in our blood vessels and our arteries. This is what really leads to cardiovascular issues. A diet rich in whole nutrient-dense foods, including animal foods, is the proper diet for good heart health and the overall health of our bodies. This is where vitamins and mineral balances are present, present with the cofactors that are needed for absorption. We need to get a good variety of fats in our diet, including saturated fats. We need to work to restore the one to one ratio of omega three to omega six fats. We need to avoid vegetable oils and all at all at, when at all possible. They provide oxidative damage to our bodies. They are high in omega sixes, which we need some, but we are way off on the ratios of of omega three to omega six. We need to avoid the processed grains, especially processed wheats like pasta, bread, packaged snacks. We need to lower the amount of carbohydrates from packaged and processed foods to lower inflammation in our body. And we need to do more reading and research. So don't blindly rely on the AHA, the ADA, the USDA, or your doctor. Go out there, do some research yourself, start reading some of these books, listening to more podcasts like this one, get the right information. You, we really have to take our heart, you know, our heart health and our health in general into our own hands because we're in charge of us. Nobody else is gonna look out for us like we do. Um, I have some great resources that I would suggest you follow up with. I will link these in my show notes, but I'll read them off really quick. The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teichels, Cholesterol Clarity by Jimmy Moore, Cholesterol Code, The Great Cholesterol Myth by Dr. Johnny Bowden, Fat and Cholesterol Don't Cause Heart Attacks by Zoe Harcomb, Eat the Yolks by Liz Wolf, Fat for Fuel by Dr. Mokola, Grain Brain by Dr. Joseph Perlmutter, the Case Against Sugar, Sugar by Dr. Gary Tobbs, Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon, and Real Food Keto by Jimmy and Christine Moore. So those are t- 11 books, actually, that I highly recommend you read. They've got lots and lots of really good information in them. Um, really, if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around the fat, that fat is good and that we should be eating that and our bodies need it, start with the Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teichels. There's so much great information in there and I think it'll really blow you away with kind of how deceived we've been over the decades and help you kind of rest assured that you're not hurting yourself when you're eating fat. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you guys here again next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Keto Lifestyle Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed what we shared with you today and are looking forward to the next episode.